Well, today, as Aaron has already mentioned, this is a Sending Sunday, which can be a bittersweet occasion for us. It's great for us to be able to remember God's purpose for the, mission, uh, for the nations and to remember that we were part of those nations and that we have been sent to reach the nations just as we ourselves have been reached. But we also recognize that sending comes with its own forms of hardship, whether that's hardship here as we send people out from our midst or whether that's the hardships that our distributed members face when they're in the field. It comes with its own set of hardships. And so in today's sermon, we're going to be looking at how Jesus answered those hardships and what he has to say to comfort us in the midst of those. However, uh, in that respect, I am eminently aware of my youth. Uh, And so before we get started, I want us to pray, and I'd ask you to pray for me as we present God's word, because I have nothing to offer, but God's word does. And so I pray that uh, that he would help us um, to deliver that word well. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us your true and precious word. We thank you that you've given it as a rock, as a fortress that stands firm throughout the ages. And God, we pray that no matter what this world uh, has to offer, we thank you that you have given us Christ, our refuge. God, I pray that you would allow your word to speak powerfully and that you would help me to get out of the way of it. Uh, And God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 21. That's Luke chapter 21. We'll be beginning in verse 5. You can also use one of the pew Bibles uh, in the chair in front of you if you don't have your own. We've been preaching through the book of Luke, and our theme in the book of Luke has been upside down, how Jesus has turned the world upside down. And already, as Brad has been walking us through that in chapter 19, We saw how Jesus turned the temple upside down, turned Jerusalem upside down as he entered uh, in his triumphal entry and then clearing out the temple. In Luke chapter 20, we saw how Jesus answered all of the accusations that the Pharisees and Sadducees could throw at them. And today, we're going to be seeing how Jesus now turns his disciples' expectations upside down. Our main idea today, as you might have already gathered from our liturgy, is Jesus our refuge. Jesus, our refuge. And we'll see that worked out in two different ways this morning. First, Jesus, our refuge from false religion. And second, Jesus, our refuge from false security. That's Jesus, our refuge from false religion, and Jesus, our refuge from false security. Now, I'm going to be preaching as we go through the passage, so rather than all stand together and read it uh, at first, I'm going to preach as we go through it, but I do want you to to invite you to take a posture in your hearts where we, as we read, are standing before God, we're listening to his word, and we can all say together, the Lord has spoken to us, and we respond. All righty, let's go ahead and take a look, starting in verse 5. We'll begin reading in chapter 21. Some of Jesus' disciples were remarking about how beautiful, how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. Now, before we go any further, let's just stop right there. So the disciples are leaving the temple after having this debate with the Pharisees and Sadducees, after turning out the temple, and they're talking about how beautiful the temple is. Now, you can imagine rolling into Jerusalem with the triumphal entry and with Jesus shutting down his opponents. The disciples might be starting to feel a little bit arrogant, like, yeah, I chose the right side here. Um, However, As they're leaving the temple, they're looking at how beautiful the temple is and how beautiful the offerings are. 
Now, we could jump on the disciples and say that's silly. After all, you just saw how Jesus cleared out the temple. He just got rid of the, some of those beautiful sacrifices. And yet, it's a temptation that we can face too. The disciples were impressed with their building. They were impressed with their religious observances. And when we listen to the words of Jesus, we should read it. We should listen to it in that respect. He's rebuking ways in which they are impressed with themselves. And so before we go further, I want to ask you guys, what are ways that you are tempted to be impressed with yourself? Specifically, impressed with your practice of religion. So thinking about as Ascending Sunday, maybe we're tempted to be impressed with our country. America's the greatest in the world. And while there might be some truth to that in some ways, we can also recognize that that's not a healthy sense of pride that we can foster in our hearts. In some way, maybe we can say, I'm proud that we're the Southern Baptist Convention, that we aren't like some of those other denominations that have fallen away from the truth. There's some truth to that. And yet that pride that wells up in our heart can be its own form of sin. It can be its own tempting siren song for us. Even within the walls of Antioch Church, we can be really proud of who we are as a church. And there is a lot to be proud of. We have a culture that uh, lifts up sending, that lifts up the sending of missionaries throughout the world. And that's a good thing. We can be proud that we're a close-knit community, that we have that community. And that's a good thing. And yet even then, we can be tempted to look around at other churches and say, well, at least we're not like the church with the smoke machines. At least we're not like that church that has all of the conflicts going on in it. We can be tempted to say, at least I'm not like them. So pride is not something we're immune to. Just because we're a small church doesn't mean that we are immune to the same temptation that the disciples were facing. And then on a personal level, we can think, at least I'm not like blank. At least I'm a better father than so-and-so. At least I don't send my kids to that school. At least I don't blank. Jesus is going to have strong words in response to this kind of thinking. So before we go any further, I want you to just take a moment and think to yourself, how would I fill in that blank? Who am I tempted to compare myself to? At least I'm not blank. And with that answer in mind, I want you to read as we look at the words of Jesus. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every single one of them will be thrown down. In other words, all of those things that the disciples were impressed with, those stones, aren't going to be there anymore. If you go to Jerusalem today, all that's left is a crumpled wall. There's nothing left of that temple. In the same way, anything that we put our hope in, any of these worldly hopes that we might put our faith in, that we might put our trust in, they're going to come crumbling down before the power of God's word and in the power of time. They're going to be crumpled down. If God didn't spare his own temple, where he wrote the instructions himself on how to build it, if he didn't spare that temple, there is no institution, no person that God will spare who lifts up pride in their hearts for their impressiveness before God. We have to submit ourselves to God and to his word, recognizing that if we allow pride to well up in our hearts like this, we are going to be blind to what God is doing around us, and it's going to catch us off guard. Now, the disciples recognize what Jesus is saying, and we see in verse 7, they asked, "'Teacher, uh, when will these things happen? And, and what will be the sign that they're about to take place?' They know what he's talking about. They've seen the temple destroyed before. 
They know exactly what he's talking about. And he replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. In response to their, in response to their religious pride, Jesus gives them a religious response. Now, the disciples had that question, when will this happen? What is the sign? And notice, the disciples also, not only do they reflect our temptation to be impressed with ourselves, the disciples also reflect some of the questions that we like to ask. Often when we come to the Bible, we want to know the details. We want more details. What was this disciple thinking when this happened? What was going on here? We want to know the details. And when we read end times passages, like what we're going to see, our temptation is to look for the details. When will these things happen? What are the signs that are about to happen? But I want you to notice that this is not necessarily a fruitful way to come about or come to these texts. Jesus tells us in Acts 1-7 that it's not for you to know the plans that the Father has in store. Or in Matthew 24, Jesus says that even the Son does not know the day or the hour. If even he is refraining from that knowledge, we're not going to be able to figure out the details, the dates of when those things are going to happen. Rather, when God tells us these end times revelations, when God shows us these things, there's a different purpose in mind. It's not so that we can get out our calendars, circle the date, and try to get things ready. Rather, it's to give us the end so that we know how to get there, so that we know how to live. Stephen Covey, in his best-selling book, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, gave the habit of beginning with the end in mind, that successful people know where they want to go, and because of that, they're able to get there. They know how to get there because they know where they're going. And in the same way, when God gives us these details about the end of the world, it's not so that we can get at our calendar and mark the date, but it's so that we know that no matter what comes in the whatever comes in the middle, we know that God is there with us, that he has planned it, and that when things get worse, we're not discouraged. When things go badly, when things don't go as planned, we're not taken off guard. We know to expect these things. It reminds me of, um, it reminds me of when Audrey was having Felix, and in that delivery room, there's a lot of pain, and there's a lot of suffering that goes on in that moment. And yet, that pain has something that's worthwhile— the expectation of having the child at the end. There is a joy set before, uh, set before a mother that allows them to endure, that empowers them to endure through that moment of childbirth. And in the same way, we see that Jesus bore the cross before him. Why? For the joy set before him, Hebrews 12.2. And in the same way, when we come to expecting hardship, we're able to endure because of the joy set before us. So as we read this passage, think about how this rebukes the false hopes that we might have, but also how it encourages us to seek him well in the midst of that. Let's take a look with me at verse 8. He gives us a warning. Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. I want to look at each of those phrases in here. So first, you'll see on the screen, for many will come in my name. In other words, Jesus is not talking about those out there. He's not talking about those people who are doing drugs on the corner of the street. He's not talking about the people who are uh, 
meeting in the Buddhist temple. He's talking about many will come in my name, people claiming to be Christians. He's talking about people on our own team, so to speak. What came to mind as I was thinking about that was that recently, somehow, we have, our house has become a magnet for Mormon missionaries. Uh, I don't know if you guys have this experience, but we get Mormon missionaries to our house all the time. And one of the great things about talking to Mormon missionaries is that they are wide open to talking about the gospel. One of the frustrating things about Mormon missionaries is that they have much of the same vocabulary as we do, but they're using a different dictionary. So when you say that uh, salvation comes by faith alone through Jesus, they can nod their head and say, yes, yes, we agree. Yet what they mean by that is something totally different than what we mean by that. And that can be a frustrating experience. In the same way, what Jesus is pointing out here is that often the danger that we face is not just the threats from outside the church coming in, but when we are not on the same team, when we claim to all be Christians, but we're not using the same words, we're not using the same meaning, we're not on the same team, on the same page about what those things mean. So specifically, he's got, uh, he's got a specific uh, thing in mind here, which is that claim, I am he and the time is near. He's focusing on these two things. In other words, people that claim that the promises of the resurrection, the promises of God's blessing have already come. They're here. One point and example for Antioch is just across the parking lot. So the Seventh-day Adventist church uh, started with a man named William Miller. He was a Baptist pastor. And William Miller, studying uh, his Bible, studying his end times passage, had decided that he had figured out exactly when Jesus was going to come back. October 22nd, 1847. And so on October 22nd, 1847, everyone in his church, all of his followers, got together. They gathered up on this hill. They were wearing white robes. They were ready. They thought, he's coming, he's coming. This is the day. And then it didn't happen. Jesus didn't show up on that day. It's remembered by historians as the great disappointment. And in response to that great disappointment— they decided, well, it's because we weren't holy enough. The day came, and we were not holy enough to receive it. And so to this day, the Seventh-day Adventist Church and some other denominations, some smaller ones, continue to try through observing the Sabbath on Saturday or through other means to be holy enough so that they do not miss that day. The temptation is to think that I have seen something that other people haven't seen. I know that the time is near. And yet that's a temptation that we can face too. Sometimes we get wrapped up in the details or we get wrapped up in expecting that the kinds of blessings Jesus promises in the resurrection have already come and that we can lay claim to them in a way that's not appropriate. Yes, Jesus can heal. And yet when the healing doesn't come, that doesn't mean Jesus is not faithful. It means that perfect healing is coming in the resurrection. And in the meantime now, we can pray and ask God to provide that healing, but even if it doesn't come, we know that we have a God who's faithful. The time is near, but it's not that near. In the same way, we might be tempted to think, um, when it comes to talking about the resurrection, we know that God has raised our souls when we believe in him. When we believe in Christ, we know that God has raised up our souls to be 
saved to be with him in heaven now and forevermore. That's eternal security. But our temptation then is to think that's it and that now the resurrection has come. But Paul warns us it's not. Trust me, when the resurrection comes, there's going to be graves opening up. There's going to be physical bodies raised up. There's a physical resurrection coming. It's not yet because you haven't seen that yet. Don't worry. You'll know it when it's here. There won't be any denying it. And yet our temptation is to think, well, that's already here. The blessings are already here. And not yet. The time is near, but it's not quite that near. We have to live with this tension of being already promised and not yet fully fulfilled. And so Jesus gives us this command. Do not be deceived. Do not follow them. Don't be tricked. Don't be tricked by the lies. It's necessary for us to not be deceived by these false promises, but rather in the midst of trial, in the midst of hardship, to recognize that Jesus has purpose in it and that we can trust his faithfulness even in the midst of those hardships and not just through the ending of them. To compare this, I'm curious, in this room, how many of you guys are coffee drinkers? How many coffee drinkers? Oh boy, a lot. Um, I am not. Uh, I have accidentally had coffee once uh, and hated it. So, So this question is addressed to you guys. Can you guys taste the difference between good coffee and bad coffee? Seeing lots of yeses. Now, if you had like a clear mug with them sitting in front of you, could you visually see the difference? Sometimes, maybe. Yeah, sometimes, I'm getting lots of sometimes, maybe, no. Yeah, I could. Uh, some confident people. Uh, but tell me, as soon as you take that first sip, can you tell? You can tell when you sip the difference. And in the same way, when we have steeped in God's word, when we have let God's word permeate us, we can tell the difference between good teaching and bad teaching. When we spend time in God's word, we can tell the difference between what's false, what's misinterpreting, what's taking those promises out of context, and we can tell the difference between those who truly know God and are reading their Bibles in light of the Holy Spirit working in them. We can taste the difference between good teaching and bad teaching, but in order to taste the difference, you have to steep. You have to spend time in God's word. And so my invitation to you guys this morning is do you have that regular discipline of spending time in God's word? If yes, then you can tell the difference. But if no, you're not getting the experience to know the difference, to know the difference between good teaching and bad teaching. And that's what the disciples had to deal with, and it's something that we have to deal with. If even the apostles had to learn this lesson, we do too. We continue False religion is not the only temptation that the disciples faced. Rather, Jesus continues, starting in verse 9. Now, Jesus is going to talk about several sources of security that we might look to. So religion is one place that we might look for security. We might look for security within the church. But there's several others. So we're going to look at how Jesus talks about the false security of the status quo of what's normal the false security of government and politics, and the false security of our own family and friends. Now that can stomp on some toes. So we're going to be careful as we read this. Take a look at verse 9. When you hear wars of, when you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. 
Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. So, first, Jesus is pointing out these calamities, these crises, things that are going on around the world, whether it's wars or famines or epidemics, whatever it might be, these big news headline calamities. Now, we might see that list and think, oh, goodness, that's us. We might look at our headlines and say, look, there's political uprisings in the U.S. There's war in Ukraine and in Sudan. There's earthquakes going on in Turkey. There's famine in the Horn of Africa, and there is pestilence among our chickens. That's why our eggs are so expensive. So so we can look at this list and say, that's us. And yet, an ancient Roman could read the same list and say, that's us. We've got wars. We've got plagues. We've got epidemics. We've got these things. And a medieval Christian could read this and say, that's us. England is at war with France. We have these earthquakes going on in Germany. We have these same things. What Jesus is giving us here is not a magic apocalypse bingo card where we can check off the things as they happen and say, okay, we've checked our boxes. Jesus must be coming back in 1847. But rather... What Jesus is doing for us is he's giving us a timeless description of our fallen world. Since the beginning, the first war started in Genesis 4 between Cain and Abel, and it's been going on ever since. The first epidemic started when Adam and Eve left the garden, and they've been continuing since. We live in a fallen world where these things continue to happen. And so what Jesus is reminding us is that we shouldn't get these utopic ideas in our head that in this world— We can make it all better. But rather, when things get hard, we expect it. We expect that things will get worse before they get better, that things will continue to be worse, and in the midst of it, that doesn't mean God has abandoned us. When things get worse before they get better, it means that God is doing what he promised he would do. Now, those short-term headlines— Those things in the news might help us to make short-term decisions. They help mission agencies know where to send missionaries. They help us know how to invest our stocks. They help us know how to live in the real world. And so we do have to take those headlines into account and interpret them through the lens of Scripture. And yet we recognize that the Bible, not those things, should determine our expectations of what God is going to do. Now, Not only is this true on a macro scale, but these things can also be true in the personal crises that go on in your life. It's easy to look at a headline about war in Ukraine and distance itself, but what about the conflict you have with your sister? What about the war going on within your own family? Or it can be easy to think famine, it's over there, I don't have to worry about that. But what about the famine in your bank account? That's very real, and it hits very close to home for us. We might think about pestilence on some farm in the Midwest, in Iowa, but what about the diagnosis that you just received? We might think about troublesome signs happening somewhere in a temple in India, but what about those strings where it just seems like nothing seems to go your way? Those weeks when everything seems to backfire. In those moments, it can be tempting for us to think, What's going on? What did I do to upset God? Why is he letting all of these things happen? They can be very challenging to us. Whether it's the big macro scale uh, war in Ukraine kind of issues, or whether it's the heart issues warring within ourselves. 
It can be tempting in the midst of crisis and calamity to doubt God's goodness, to doubt whether God is there, whether he knows, and whether he cares. Now, this is a question that I have for uh, high school, middle school students. So if you're a middle school, high school student, I want to take a poll of you guys. How many of you have heard one of your friends say, or even one of your teachers say, I can't believe in a God who would do blank? Okay? I can't believe in a God who would do blank. Okay? Let me put it this way. I can't believe in a God who would send someone to hell. Have you heard that objection? Okay, so this is a common objection. Uh, I know when I was in college, this was one of the most common objections I heard. I know for those of you who might be a bit more advanced in experience, uh, maybe one of the big objections that you were used to was that evolution or the Big Bang Theory made it where God didn't need to exist. But what I see more and more prevalently is this theory that I can't believe in a God who would allow this to happen. In other words, if God is like this, I don't want him to exist. And that's sinister. And so, with that in mind, we come to this and we realize that in the face of these calamities, a good and loving God can still allow these things to occur because he has a purpose in them. Now, there are many reasons why God might bring about specific crises in your life, but I want to bring out four specific purposes that he can have. When God allows crisis to happen, he has four, at least four, purposes. First, crisis and calamity, it refines the faith of the faithful. I think about one of my friends from Iran. When he saw the oppression that he faced under the Iranian government and all of it done in the name of Islam, he recognized that's not true. If that's what they say is true, it's not good, and I know it's not true. And it led him to become a Christian. It led him to seek out ways to find Christians, and it led him to find faith in Christ and a life with him. So it refines the faith of the faithful. Those who are truly walking with God will be refined through that process, learning to grow closer to him in the midst of it. Secondly, Crisis sifts out nominal believers. Those who think that their church attendance or their Awana card can get them into heaven realize that that's not enough to get them uh, through this crisis, through this calamity. They realize that their faith is not legitimate. And so crisis sifts out those who are nominal believers but haven't yet fully committed their life to Christ. Thirdly, it compels non-believers into saving repentance— I remember as an RA in college talking to um, people who were under a lot of stress and recognizing maybe for the first time that they didn't have what it takes to do everything, that they couldn't check all the boxes, that they couldn't meet all of the demands. And in that moment, they recognized that they needed a savior. It compels non-believers to repentance. And fourthly, it passes judgment on uh, the non-repentant. It passes judgment on those who have not repented of their sins and refuse to repent of their sins. And in this case, it's justified. They have already been given the invitation to mercy, and they've rejected it. So suffering does all of these things. It's purposeful in this life. It has many purposes, which is why we shouldn't be quick to say 
the suffering is doing this specifically in your life, or it's because of this specifically in your life, and yet we can promise that it is purposeful, that it is accomplishing something, and we can point to the things that we see it accomplishing in their lives. But ultimately, we're still left with this tension that I am being asked to trust in a God who is willing to use these hardships in my life to bring me closer to him. That's hard. It's a hard lesson to ask. And in the midst of that, when I'm facing that faith, can I trust a God who is willing to harm me for my good? That's a hard question to ask. And so I want you to think about the father of the demon-possessed boy. In Mark 9, a dad brings his son to Jesus. He brings it to the disciples first, and the disciples can't cast out this demon for some reason. And they bring him to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, if you can help me, if you can do anything, please have compassion and help me. Notice that if this man has doubts, this man is doubting and questioning whether Jesus can help. And Jesus' response was, if, if you believe anything is possible, do you believe this? And the man in that moment had to ask, yes, I believe. Help my unbelief. My heart wants to know it's true. It's good. I know it's true, and I want to believe in you, but my mind keeps getting in the way. God, help my unbelief. In the same way, we think of when Peter and the disciples heard a rough message from Jesus. It was not a popular one. The the sanctuary was empty at the end of the message, and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Peter, are you, or disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go, Jesus? You have the words of life. This is hard. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And yet you have the words of life. Where else can I go? It's like a sheep running to the wolf because he doesn't trust the shepherd. There's nowhere else to go. We have to turn to Jesus. And so the question that we have is, do you trust a God who promises to love you, who has the power to help you, and who is willing to wound for the sake of bringing greater healing. It's an act of faith, and that's what faith means. When we believe in Christ and have faith in him, we are trusting that there is a God who is good, who cares, and who is willing to do what is in our best interest in order to bring us into a growing and saving relationship with him. And so if you have not had the opportunity to make that statement of faith before, or if you are wrestling with those doubts in your own head, is Jesus faithful in the midst of this? I want to invite you that yes, he is. Jesus is present in the midst of it. You can trust him, and when you don't trust him, when you have that unbelief, turn to him, and he is delighted to offer you that gift of forgiveness, that gift of faith. Faith is a gift, not a work of our own. Well, in the midst of calamities like the ones we talked about, war, disease, pestilence, another place we might be tempted to turn our faith is not just on religion, but turning to the government. The government can help. And certainly, ideally, the government would be appointed as a good source for dealing with these things. After all, good governments make wars to cease. They stop wars when they break out. They make peace between people. Good governments do provide disaster relief in the wake of the earthquake or the um, or the epidemic. Good governments support churches and charities in helping to do these things. They do these things. However, unfortunately, we live in a fallen world where governments are run by sinful men. 
And so the fact of the matter is that governments will not, are government in a fallen world, governments will not always be good at addressing these forms of calamity. This leads us to verse 12 through 15. But before all of this, they will seize you and they will persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. So not only are the government... Not only are human, earthly governments not able to do uh, the things that we would expect them to do because of their sinfulness, but we also recognize that that particular animosity is directed towards Christians, is directed towards those who challenge that sin with the faith of Christ. We see this in our own culture as there's shifting animosity towards the church from our culture, and even where those things have resulted in legal actions— but for our distributed members, they get to see this in a whole different world. They get to see worlds that have fallen apart, that are hostile to the gospel in violent ways. And we have to remember that, it's, that our brothers and sisters around the world do not have these same freedoms that we have here. The fact of the matter is that the government can be an active participant in leading to our persecution and our harm. However, in the midst of that, Jesus offers a different hope. In verse 13, he says, and so you will bear testimony to me. Now that word testimony is, from, is the same Greek word that we get our word martyr from. In other words, martyrdom, dying on behalf of Christ and suffering on behalf of Christ is a testimony to the truth of the gospel and the power of the gospel. When we suffer on behalf of our faith, when we suffer because of our decision to follow Jesus, we are proclaiming to the world that Jesus is better than any worldly recourse. The martyrs who died in the Colosseum were testifying that I fear God more than I fear lions. The martyrs who die in Nigeria today are testifying that I fear God more than I fear Boko Haram. When we suffer for our faith, we are testifying to the world that I care more about Christ than whatever this world has to throw at me. And so it testifies to the truth that Jesus has risen, that Jesus has power, and that Jesus is Lord over all things, and that we believe he will make them right. In Revelation chapter 6, we get a vision of this in the throne room of heaven. After all of these calamities, war and pestilence and death, and the four horsemen, and earthquakes that shake the world. Sound familiar? On the throne, and the sixth, when the sixth seal is broken, there's the martyrs reaching out from under the throne, saying, Jesus, how long? How long will it be before you come back? How long will it be before you execute judgment? How long will it be before you avenge our sufferings? And Jesus' promise to them is, don't worry. I will. Just be patient and enjoy being in my presence right now. It will happen. Peter, for his part, reminds us that God is not slow in fulfilling his promises like we are. You know, we dawdle, we kick the can down the road, we procrastinate because we don't want to do it. But, Jesus, but God is not like that. 
He's not kicking the can down the road endlessly. Rather, he is patient, not wanting any to perish. And then in verse 14 and 15, Jesus gives us a warning. He also commands us, not only will you bear testimony to me through these sufferings, but also make up your mind beforehand not, that you will not worry about how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you the words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to contradict. In other words, he's saying don't rely on your own words and your own schemes, but trust in my power and in my spirit to give you what you need in the day you need it. I know I was a speech and debate uh, speaker. I like debate. I like to plan out what I'm going to say. This verse hits hard, especially with the hypocrisy of writing out a sermon. Um, So for me, having to think through not what I'm going to say, but what does the Spirit want to say through me, is a source of power, and it's a source of power that Jesus is offering you too. I'm not going to leave you as orphans, he says, but I'm sending you the Spirit so that Jesus himself, his Spirit, can be alive and working in you. Finally, we see the false security of family and friends. Now, this one hits a bit closer to home because we think of family and the home as this ultimate place of security, and yet... Jesus is recognizing that for the sake of the gospel, this is not always true. Our dear sister, who we're getting ready to send out uh, today, shared a video with me earlier this week from her country called I Against My Brother. It's based on a proverb from, uh, from around the Middle East that says, I and my country against the world, I and my clan against the country, I and my family against the clan. I and my brother against the family. I against my brother. It's recognizing that in a fallen world, there is conflict at every level. There is war and striving at every level. And Jesus says that here in this life, in the kingdom, that's not necessarily going to go away. In fact, he warns us in Matthew 10, do not think that I've come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own house. And we see that here in chapter 21. He says in verse 16, you will be betrayed even by your own parents and brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When the gospel comes into a home, it can be tempting uh, to tear apart the family. Sinners don't want to be called into the light. The light burns their eyes. And in the same way, when someone in a family accepts Christ and the rest of the family has not, it causes tension. Christ brings a sword. And yet the invitation that he says here is not a head from your hair will fall. In the midst of it all, God is there, God is present, and he's making sure that those things are ultimately for your good and not for your harm. They will test your faith, and through it all, it testifies to your family that the hope you have in Christ is a greater love than even they can imagine. Now, I want to take a closer look at verse 18. It says, but not a hair from your head will perish. Now, we might see that and think, oh, so everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. And yet that can't be what it means because in verse 16, he just said, and they will have some of you put to death. 
So that doesn't mean that everything is going to work out for the best in this life. It doesn't mean that things will always be hunky-dory or that things will always end in satisfying resolution. But here's what it does mean. In Matthew, Matthew 5, 36, Jesus used the same phrase talking about swearing. He says, don't swear by the hair of your head because you can't make a hair white. You can't change even the smallest detail. But God can. It's symbolic of God's sovereignty over the details. He knows exactly when each hair of your head will turn white, and he knows exactly when you will die, and he knows exactly when every hardship in your life will come to pass. And in the midst of it all, it's not because he's abandoned you. It's because his sovereign protection extends through every single detail. Jesus then gives us a command, stand firm and you will win life. That command to stand firm kind of cuts two ways. It has two edges to it. First, maybe you think to yourself, I am standing. Maybe like the disciples, you look around at your church, you look around at your life, and you say, things are going really well. I feel like I am standing. I feel like we are doing what's right. I feel like we are in a good standing with God. Shoot, I have this position within the church. I have been sent overseas. Yeah, I'm standing. I have to be standing. I'm doing pretty well in my faith. Hear Paul's warning. Be careful if you think you stand, lest you fall. If we don't see our weaknesses and know where it is that we're vulnerable, that's a dangerous place to be in. The castle that doesn't know its walls are broken down is in serious peril. And in the same way, when we don't recognize where we can be tempted, when we don't recognize our faults and don't invite that in, we're in peril. But the sword also cuts another way. Maybe we hear that command to stand firm and think, I can't do that. We look around at everything else that we have going on in our lives, all of this, all of the hardship, all of the frustrations that I'm feeling at work, my kids, my health, my job, my family, everything around me falling apart. Jesus, I can't stand up. I'm too weak for that. If you feel like you can't stand, if you feel like you are too weak to, uh, to obey this command, Jesus has a promise to you. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and humble in spirit. Take my yoke upon you, because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Likewise, he's drawing on a promise that came through the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah promises that those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. If you feel like you are weak, that you are not in a position to obey what God has commanded you, I have good news for you. You're right. And yet God, Jesus is strong. He extends this invitation to bear that burden with you and for you. In closing, I want to go back over some of these applications uh, that Jesus gives us from this passage. First, like the disciples, like the disciples in the temple, we can be tempted to look at our lives and look at ourselves as being so impressive. So where might you be tempted to be impressed with yourself? What about with your church or in your denomination? In those things, let's remember that those who boast ought to boast in Christ. When things are well, let's reflect that in gratitude for Jesus and also be cautious to make sure that it does not become a source of pride in our own works. Secondly, in the face of calamity and crisis in our world, 
no matter what's going on, whether it's in the global headlines or in the headlines of your heart, know that Jesus has given you the hope of the resurrection. Jesus has a better hope before you. He has not left you like orphans. He has gone to prepare a place for you. He's given you his body, the church, to, as a gift to sustain you until he returns. Thirdly, God's kingdom advances by Christ's power, not by our schemes. It's not dependent upon the words that you use or saying just the right thing in just the right time, but rather contingent on the Spirit's power to work in the heart of the people you're speaking to and to work in your own heart to refine it. So abide in the Spirit. Let him speak through you and give him that time to work in you so that it might rest on his power and not in yours. Fourthly, while earthly family is one of our greatest blessings and provisions from God, it can also be one of the greatest positions of strife because you know that when you open your heart to someone, you're also giving them permission to wound it. You're giving them access to cause wounds. But instead of then trying to fortify our hearts until they become cold stones, I would ask that in the midst of that strife in family, when you've been wounded, remember you have a brother, Christ, whose name is love, who holds healing in his hands and stands before the Father ready to make an invitation and petition for you. Know that Jesus, your good brother and great high priest, stands ready for you. And we remember that today. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup and he blessed it and said, this is my blood of the new covenant which is spilled for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're announcing that Jesus is returning. You're announcing that there is a hope, that there is a judgment coming, that these calamities one day will cease. You are announcing that sin has an expiration date and that Jesus is coming to make it right. You are announcing to the world that no matter what happens, you believe and you confess that Jesus is Lord. If you have been a baptized believer in Christ, if you have been in a relationship with him and made that decision to follow him in faith, this table is for you. Come and announce it together. If you want to believe in Christ, but you've not yet been baptized, we would invite you to first take that symbol, showing that you have been made a new creation in Christ. And if you've not yet been baptized, if you're not a follower of Christ, then I have really good news for you. You don't need bread and juice. Those aren't going to help you. But Christ himself stands ready, offering his hands and offering healing in the midst of whatever you're going through. He can take away your sins, and he can be your refuge. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our refuge. No matter what we might face in this world, you have overcome you are the one who makes wars to cease. You are the one who cures disease. You are the one who is our refuge, no matter what goes wrong in our lives. And so God, I pray that you would remind us of your presence, that you would bring us comfort in the midst of hardship, and that you would be our true temple in whom we can abide. God, we thank you, and we praise you, and we honor your holy name, because it is worthy to be honored and praised.
And it's in your name we pray. Amen.